0: The Lord is God where? The Lord is God where? You heard it five times in Zechariah's prayer. You may not have counted, but I did. He is God where? He is God in this place. Let's worship. Father, I love you. I lay my life before you. Father, how I love you. Jesus, how I love you. I lay my life before you, Jesus, how I love you, Spirit, how I love you, I lay my life before you, Spirit, oh, how I love you, I lay my life before you, what, Lord, where is he? I don't know, am I my brother's keeper, where's Zechariah today, well, I don't know, Lord, Why? Isn't he here? Well, I think I I might know, Lord. Would you excuse me for a moment, Lord? Zechariah, I know I offended you. Would you please forgive me? Yes, I do. Would you join me in worship? Let's go. Father, here we are again, and we lay our life before you. We love you, Father. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Spirit. We lay our lives before you. What, what Lord? Where's Joanne? Well, I don't know, Zechariah. Do you know where Joanne is? I think I do. Here, Zechariah. Hey, Ms. John, Uh, please will you forgive me in any way I've wronged you. I ask for your forgiveness. I forgive you. May you join me in worship, please. May the peace of the Lord be with you. Lord, we come again to worship you and we lay our lives before you. What, Lord? Where's Mike? I don't know. I don't know why he's here, Lord. Joanne, do you have any knowledge about where Mike is and I why saw, he might be? I saw him in the choir, so I think he's out in the congregation. Mike, where are you? I see him. Mike? I want to apologize for offending you. Will you forgive me? I will forgive you, Joanne. Let's go worship. May the peace of the Lord be with you all as we worship. We lay our lives... Before the Lord today, but not until we are reconciled with one another. And so we come together to share something with you, and that is, may the peace of the Lord be with you. And God's people said, okay. Of course, this is a demonstration of today's passage of scripture from the Sermon on the Mount. After Jesus has identified the people of God as those who reflect the Beatitudes, and as he has charged them with his mission for them, and that is to be salt and light. He then comes to a point where he explains what full righteousness is, and he uses six illustrations, as we spoke about a couple of weeks ago. And in the first of those, he deals with the most grievous of those sins, I think, in the last table of the law to explain what it means not to murder And in that, he goes beyond the rule, and you know what he says. He says, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, go. Leave your offering at the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then do what? Then come and present your gift. Of course, what Jesus is doing there, I think we understand. He is going beyond the rule, and the rule is, do not commit murder. The punishment for that can be that you will be taken to trial, and the consequence of that, and that day was that you would be executed if convicted. But he goes beyond that in verse number 22 of Matthew 5, and he deals with a principle. And he says, this is a matter of the heart, not just rules. You see, the prohibition goes beyond just physical murder. It's possible for us to murder with our heart, to harbor murder in our heart. It's possible for us to murder and to slay with a tongue. And he gives three examples. When you're angry, you do this. When you call somebody a mindless idiot, we have other words for that today. <laughs> Especially when we're driving down the road, right folks? <laughs> when you call somebody a moron, You see, these are abusive and murderous. You see, the ultimate objective, he says, really in this first part of the six examples about how really to fulfill righteousness, he says, the real point is that we must be at peace with one another. Paul reminds us this in Romans. He says, you see, if it's at all possible, so far as you are concerned, so far far as I am concerned, we have an individual responsibility to be at peace with all persons. And then he makes two applications, one of which we look at today, and that is reconciliation. Reconciliation, restoration, repairing of relationships within the fellowship as we come to the altar and we lay our lives as a tapestry before God. Next week, we're going to look at the second application of that, and as we're walking along the way, we are to do what? We are to make friends. And the specific example he gives is when you're headed to court with with an enemy, make friends with them on the road. And we'll talk about that next week, but both of those have to do with making peace. The word reconciliation, in the original language that we look at in Scripture, means a couple of things. It means to be thorough about something, and it means to be thorough about changing something, to the point that we maybe even change someone's mind about us, that we change their minds so that they're no longer enemies with us, or they're offended by us, but the rest, the the relationship between us and the fellowship is restored. The word is really based on a root word which means to transform, a complete transformation in a relationship that has been broken. You know, in 1 Corinthians, Paul puts it this way. He says in two, two times in the fifteenth chapter on, on the chapter on the resurrection, we will not all sleep, but we all will be what? We will all be changed. We will all be transformed, and it's that same word. It's passive. It's not that I transform, it's not that I reconcile, it says, you know what it says, when you're standing there, you're presenting your offering at the altar there, remember that your brother has something against you, then do what? Leave your gift at the altar, go and not reconcile, but what? What does it say? Not reconcile, but what? Be reconciled. It's passive, and that's important. For reconciliation does not happen between two people unless it comes from the outside. And when I went to Zechariah, I came with an attitude of reconciliation, and he received it with a response of an attitude of of reconciliation. But what caused that to happen? It happened here at the altar when who spoke to me? When God spoke to me. You see, first we must be reconciled to Him. Reconciliation is something that God does. He does to us, and He does to others, and He brings us together. And the result is that we are restored to favor The Latin phrase for reconciliation really means to bring alongside to make a change. And the result of that is it brings about harmony. That is, the enmity is dispersed. It repairs the relationship, and we're restored in friendship with one another. And beyond that, and it's very important, as we turn and we face you together, unified, we could say then what? The peace of the Lord Be with you. It brings unity. Well, how do you do reconciliation? I think there are two considerations that we need to remember, and the first I've already mentioned, and that is we don't do reconciliation. We are reconciled. And God then brings us together, and God initiates this. You see, this isn't what the world does. Oh, I know we try to make peace, and we have ambassadors that try to keep the peace. And inevitably, we go to war against one another time and time again. It is only God who can bring reconciliation. You see, He is the outside power that does it, not just higher power. He's the person, God, creator of all, who loves all of His children, and wants to bring them together in reconciliation. A second consideration is this. It's a three-way, interoperative kind of activity. You see, it's not just between me and Joanne. It's not just between Joanne and Mike. It's not just between Mike and Zechariah and Zechariah and me. It's not just between us at the horizontal level. It's also vertical. It begins with a vertical reconciliation, and then it is expressed in horizontal reconciliation, and we must do both. It's interoperative. You see, we must be reconciled to God before we can ever hope to reconcile with others. And yet, if we truly love God, we will do what? We will love our neighbor, and we will be reconciled with our neighbor. So there is an interoperability here between those three elements. How do we do reconciliation? I think it begins with spiritual awareness. We come to the altar, and if we are not just talking to God, but if we're listening to Him, if it's not all about us, but it's about listening to Him, He speaks to our heart. And the whole priesthood comes together. We came this morning, as Peter tells us, to offer up our spiritual sacrifices as a whole body. Whole as in terms of all together, but also whole in terms of having been healed. And the Holy Spirit brings us together this morning, as He does every Lord's Day in the congregation, to examine ourselves. And we did. And we had a prayer of confession. And we reflected self-examination. Are we worshiping in spirit and in truth. We do self-examination. Do we have, as David did in Psalm 51, a contrite heart, a repentant heart, an humble heart? We examine ourselves. Are we worshiping sincerely? Are we simply vainly babbling, like the pagans do, repetitiously following form without substance? We ought to examine ourselves whenever we come together and worship for all of these things, And there is a fundamental thing we must not forget. We must examine our relationships with each other. Folks, not all of us are easy to love. I get it, okay? Not of all of us are equally lovable people. Why are you laughing? Some of us are a little bit prickly. Some of us have a little bit of a rough edge. We each have a different personality, but God brings us together like a jigsaw puzzle with all of those rough and curved and angular edges. Not many of us have the straight edge. Okay. But he calls us to love each other, even sometimes in our unloveliness, to make us whole and make us united. And so as we do this, we must examine our relationship with each other. When we come together with the Lord for the Lord's Supper, this is one of the injunctions he gives us. Matthew five, twenty three and twenty four. If your brother has something against you and you know it, you need to be reconciled. And we come under conviction. We need to be beware that if we're not reconciled to one another, and we come to this altar to worship God, and we're not reconciled, it is what? What kind of worship is it? Fill in the blank. It's what kind of worship? It's false worship. It's false worship. If we come together and we say, I love you, Father, I lay my life before you, oh, how I love you, Father, and we do not love our brother and sister, then it's not only false worship, it's empty worship. It's not only false and empty worship. Folks, we are blaspheming the image of God. It's nothing short of blasphemous worship. What? A dangerous sort of thing. We need to remember Paul's Corinthian appeal at the very beginning of that chapter, and that church was divided. Now I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete, you see, be made whole in the same mind and in the same judgment. You know, he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. What really matters What really matters in worship? It's not following the rule, it's not necessarily following the liturgy, although we obey the law and the liturgy, Ben, that you have for us every week is wonderful. But we have to be careful that we don't just come and vainly repeat it. What really matters, we know this, I don't want your many, many offerings. I don't even want just you laid at the altar, what I want is I want you with an attitude of what? Mercy, help me here, justice, and what? Humility. That's what really matters, and that's what he's talking about, really, as he goes through these six examples of how to fulfill righteousness. You see, that's what really matters. You know, so in this, there's a sense of urgency, isn't there? We become aware of our wrongful feelings of one another, and if we, if, if we do and we realize that we're actually participating in blasphemous worship, we ought to be very fearful. For the author of Hebrews says that it is a what? It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. If we realize that, we must flee the altar, leave our offering at the altar, go immediately. Do not pass go kind of thing. Immediately go to the jail and do what? And say to the one that we have offended I am sorry Would you please forgive me This requires a lot of humility You know and actually a couple of ways First of all it requires that we admit our what? Our guilt We all offend people And we may be guilty of that We need to humble ourselves Sometimes a person is offended And we haven't done anything wrong Hmm But he doesn't say if you've done something wrong He says, if your brother, if you think that you have offended your brother, for whatever reason, don't wait for your brother to come to you. Don't wait for the sister to come to you. Even if you didn't do something wrong, you go and you seek reconciliation. That takes a great deal of humility. It it takes swallowing our pride. It it takes overcoming the indignation of false accusation. But folks, the Lord doesn't care. (laughs) He doesn't care about our indignation. He doesn't care about our pride. What he wants is our humble hearts. And then he says what? Then once you've done that, then don't don't just go walking out, you know, with your arms around each other, patting each other on the back, feeling really good about having a restored relationship. He says then do what? Then come back to the altar and offer your gift. We should never substitute warm, fuzzy fellowship for genuine worship. He still expects us to come. in humble adoration and brokenness together to worship Him. So why should we seek reconciliation? Why is the Lord so insistent on this? Why does He give the imperative? I think for four reasons. One has to do with identity, one has to do with unity, one has to do with integrity, and one has to do with urgency. Identity. Reconciliation is important because we must be reconciled people with God. Unity, because the result of unity should then be peace and growth in God's kingdom. Integrity, because we have an apostolic mission about which Rebecca read this morning from 2 Corinthians 5. We're ambassadors, and we're on mission for God. And the world is looking at us, and sometimes it doesn't like what it sees, because we sometimes don't live it out with integrity. And then urgency. Urgency. If there is one thing that is hope for the rescue of our community and our nation today that is divided and at enmity and strife at each other's necks, it is godly. Godly reconciliation. You see, identity, it's the cause of our personal salvation and our security in Christ. Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood to do what? To appease the wrath of God against our sin and our sinful behavior and to do what? To eradicate our sinfulness and make us holy. And to do what? And then to stop the alienation between us. He says this in Colossians, Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind to God and to each other, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you, you see, in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him, to present you as a spiritual sacrifice before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. You see, we have been reconciled to God. It's like a balance sheet. There's a reconciliation that should happen once a month, hopefully, in your balance sheet with your bank. You take your bank statement. Is this a generational thing? You take your balance statement and your checkbook, and you make sure they what? They're reconciled. And if there's a mistake, trust me, it's usually not bank error. Sometimes it is. But you take the standard, and you look at your checkbook, and if it's out of balance, if there's a deficit, if there's a mistake, you correct it. And that's what God does with reconciliation in our lives. It's sort of like an exchange of the old for the new. A few years ago, I was a millionaire. I lived in Turkey, and I have a one million lira note here. I guess I'm still a millionaire. Except when I reconcile this with the current currency, it would be if it had any value at all. Do you know how much it'd be worth? Four cents. Four cents. The problem is, it isn't valid anymore. Well, you know, we like to go to England. And I had an old five pound note, May of 1919, goodness, wrong century, May of 2017. This went out of currency. You could not take it into a store and use it. The new currency came out. But thankfully, if I go to England next month or next year, I can take this old note and take it where? To the bank. And the bank will do what? It will reconcile it, and it will give me a brand new, fresh, plastic-looking, feeling note with a watermark in the center of it. You see, that's what God does with us. He takes the old, crumpled currency that is defective and may not have any value in currency today, and He does what? He makes it new, and He gives it value. He has reconciled us. We're securing Christ because of that. So this reconciliation personally not only has to do with our salvation, but our security. There's a watermark on this note here. You see, then he gives us a watermark, an imprimatur on our soul that guarantees that we have been reconciled, and it is a person of the Holy Spirit. And in Ephesians, he tells, he brings these two things together. Once we have been reconciled and we have the seal of the Holy Spirit, there is a certain obligation that we have to live up to. And we read about it just before we started the worship service today. In Ephesians, the fourth chapter, he says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. So don't let any bitterness, don't let any wrath, don't let any anger, don't let any clamor, don't let any evil speaking and with them, don't let any malice then overcome you. But do what? You see, a seal and a sign that the Holy Spirit is upon us is that we do these things. He says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. See, because God in Christ has done what He has forgiven you. So you see, reconciliation is important because of our identity and our salvation and our security. Reconciliation is important for unity, it's essential for church unity and for kingdom growth. You know, God brought peace to His unreconciled children. In a special way, we're the children of God according to the new covenant. But in a bigger way, every person that walks the face of this earth today was created by God in His image. And He loves every one of those people. And in that respect, they are His children. And what He did is He took one group of children that were His old covenant people, and He reconciled them with the Gentiles. And He tells us about that in Ephesians The second chapter. Those two groups that were at enmity and strife with each other, those two groups that had been mortal enemies for centuries, he broke down the barrier between them. He eradicated the enmity between them, and he brought them together in one body, and we call that the body of Christ, the church. Ephesians 2 says that he has reconciled the two, you see, in the unity of his body. Folks, if he can bring peace... To two mortal enemies like that. He can bring peace within the church and the kingdom of God today. And this should result in growth. When you look further in Ephesians 2, he says, What this results in then, as these two bodies come together, is the building up of the foundation of his church and the growing of his holy temple. Friends, Baptists have fought for centuries. Can I air some dirty laundry for a moment? Just a moment. What we find today, the strife that we find today, is not new. From the very first day, it was Seventh-day Baptist against First-day Baptist. Then it was Calvinists against Arminians. Then it was revivalist against, believe it or not, there were some that were anti revivalists It was those that were for missions and those that were against missions. And then it was how to do missions. Do we do it by convention? Do we do it by society? Or do we do it Independently. Each one of the times that we've had this strife, it has splintered off into more Baptist groups. Then it was, do we do the social gospel or not? Or how evangelical are we? Are we fundamental in our faith? Do we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? Now we're getting closer down to the middle of the 19th and the uh, the 20th century, rather. The last 45 years have been inexcusable in Baptist life. The strife that we have had in Baptist life over the last 45 years has been inexplicable well, it's been explicable it's been explainable but it's unexcusable what was intended to be a conservative resurgence turned into an undermining insurgence and that was because of both sides folks i'm not pointing a finger at one or the other the latest controversy is about women in ministry friends when we are divided over second and third order things it is time for us to say enough is enough It's time for us to say, no more. It's time for us to get about the business of doing what the gospel is about and doing kingdom business. I don't care how righteous we think our cause is. I don't think God does. God's not concerned about the seductive lure of control of a convention. God is not concerned about our emotional attachment to social and political agendas. God is concerned about our being ambassadors for Christ and loving people. God is concerned that He wants us to reconcile. And it may seem sometimes that reconciliation is impossible within the Southern Baptist Convention or Baptist life or maybe even in Christian circles. Sergeant Paul Reed had returned from Vietnam. And for 20 years, he had struggled and suffered with what he had experienced there. He was a prisoner, really, without walls, endlessly tormented about the people that he had had to kill and why he had been there. And then his mother encouraged him to go look in his footlocker and to pull out the memorabilia that he had brought back home. And as he did, this former member of the 173rd Airborne Brigade in Vietnam pulled out a knapsack that had some belongings of a North Vietnamese soldier in it. And in there was a diary. Well, he couldn't read it, but he got it translated. When he got it translated, he discovered that it was a personal diary of this one soldier, enemy soldier's love and life, his love for his family and his love for his country. And it so touched Paul's heart that he said, I'm going to find this soldier's family, and I'm going to return his diary to him, 1993. And he began to search for Nguyen Van Nhi, and to his surprise, he discovered that he was still alive, living in a village south of Hanoi, seven miles south of Hanoi. And so he bought a ticket. He went to Vietnam, and he returned the diary to Van Nui, and they embraced each other, and they reconciled. Former enemies, mortal enemies. they reconciled. Van Nui had a heart condition and a bad eye problem. Paul Reed then made arrangements through VA to bring him over here to the Dallas hospital, the Dallas VA hospital, to have operations to correct the war wounds that he had had in the Vietnamese war. Folks, if God can bring reconciliation between mortal enemies outside the church, he can certainly bring reconciliation to a people called Baptists. If we will put our pride aside... And if we will humble ourselves. Oh, does that sound familiar? If if the people that are called by my name, and the name is not Baptist, folks, but let's put it in there. If my Baptist people who are called by my name will do what? Humble themselves and pray. Turn from their evil ways and seek my face. I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Folks, this is a matter of unity. It's a matter of integrity. The world looks at us today. We proclaim to love God. We proclaim to lay our lives before God. And then he calls us on a mission. He calls us to be what? 2 Corinthians 5. You are therefore what? For Christ. You're therefore what? For Christ. You're therefore what? Ambassadors for Christ. We're on a reconciliation mission. I have given to you the mission of reconciliation. Go and reconcile others to the Father. How can we do that as a people of God? How can we do that as a church? How can we do that as Baptists if we're fighting with one another? We must be reconciled to one another if we're going to be ambassadors for Christ. December 1941, Ambassador and his special envoy had been working for months and months and months to bring reconciliation and peace between Japan and the United States. And the ambassador, who was a former admiral, retired admiral, of the Japanese Navy, had not gotten the word, because of subterfuge in the Japanese government, had not gotten the word that just as he was walking into Cordell Hall's office, just as he was walking to the office of the Secretary of State of the United States of America, to tell them that they were about to break diplomatic relations with them, Cordell Hall already knew that Pearl Harbor had virtually been destroyed. What do you think Hall and the Americans thought when those ambassadors walked in? Their portfolio was empty. They were not emissaries of peace. They were representatives of hostility. Folks, that's the way the world looks at us when we fight one another. Our ambassadorial portfolio is emptied. It is void. It is of no effect. You see, this is a matter of integrity. When the world looks at us, do they see us as peacemakers? not if we have not made peace with one another. This is why Jesus says, (laughs) one of the reasons he says, I'm giving you a new commandment, and it is to do what? To love one another. Why? Why? Well, he wants us to love one another, but then he says, I want you to love one another because by this what? People will know that you love me. It's a matter of integrity, last point. It's not only a matter of identity and unity, integrity, it's a matter of urgency. If there is one hope for peace in this nation, it comes through godly reconciliation. And there's an urgency about this. He doesn't say linger at the altar. He says, if you've got something against you, if your brother has something against you, then leave your offering at the altar. Go, be reconciled. And right after that passage that Rebecca read this morning, what does it then say? Someday, it's the acceptable time. Sooner or later, is the day. it says what? Now is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Friends, if we are going to reach the world for Christ, we must be reconciled right now, not tomorrow. Denominational unity is important. Integrity in our denomination is important. But I, as the pastor of Gamble Street Baptist Church and Gamble Street Baptist Church by itself, cannot bring about reconciliation in the Southern Baptist Convention. That can only happen by a mighty act of God when God's people humble themselves and pray. And I believe it can happen. Do you? Where does it begin? It doesn't happen in other churches. It's not the convention of however many thousand messengers sitting there in that hall. For the Southern Baptist Convention is what? It is churches. The Southern Baptist Convention is people. And it begins where? It begins here. You see, that's our congregational responsibility. I know we're not all as easy to love as others. Sometimes some of us have rough edges. But we need to remember this. Individually, we're reconciled to God, and we have a responsibility first and foremost. Certainly before we come to the communion table at the end of this month, if you know of somebody who has been offended by you, go and be reconciled and then we come together as a congregation at peace unified with integrity reconciled and listen to Zechariah's prayer you see that's where it begins you're God there too but we need to remember you are God in this place Lord you're God in this place when we come to this place, we are reconciled. And if Gambrel Street Baptist Church is thoroughly 100% reconciled, and all of the members then are working together unified and praying and believing that God will send harvesters, praying and believing that He can bring reconciliation, it will radiate from this congregation into the community around us. If all of the Baptist churches and Tarrant Baptist Association were to do the same thing, then we would then transform. God would transform through us alone, not to mention the Methodists that might do it and the Presbyterians that might do it, would transform Fort Worth. If the BGCT and the SBT both, the churches of both of those conventions would do this then, guess what? We would see our state being transformed and reconciled. If the Southern Baptist Convention and the Northern Baptist Convention and the other Baptist Conventions in America then would take this to heart and they would pray and believe that God can bring reconciliation and they humble themselves and they pray, then guess what folks? Just through that one denomination we would begin to see reconciliation radiating out through this country. There is one hope and one hope only for peace in this country, and that is reconciliation of God through his people. Let's pray. Father, forgive our sins as we forgive. You taught us, Lord, to pray, but you alone can grant us grace to live the words we say. Our prayer this morning is that If there is someone who has heard this message, that they have not gone past the first reason for reconciliation, and that is identity, that they need to be reconciled to you and the enmity between you and that person needs to be eradicated through the blood of Jesus Christ. And our prayer is, this morning, if you're listening, if the Holy Spirit has convicted your heart and He wants to call you back home and you're ready to surrender that you ask Christ to forgive you of your sin. And come home, O sinner, come home. Father, our prayer also is for the rest of us sinners who have been reconciled, for us to put away our pride and to be humble and to be reconciled as a body of Christ. And we pray for our fellow churches, not just in Baptist life, but across this nation, people who profess to be Christ's followers. That they, as we look at the political season coming up, as we look at the presidential and congressional elections coming up, as we look at the nation divided by parties, and we look at the enmity and strife on both sides of the aisle, Lord, we know that the only solution is the one who said, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives you, give I unto you my peace. So let our hearts not be troubled. Help us to surrender on the altar of reconciliation and present our lives peaceably, reconciled together to you as Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.